Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey. Welcome to the Kaka. This is my daily podcast where I look at issues of housing affordability, climate change and poverty reduction in Aotearoa um, through my lens on the political economy. And I tend to pick one thing a day and today it's MDRS. Now you might not have heard of that acronym, but if I said to you it's the law which means people can put three three-storey townhouses on a regular suburban section without a resource consent, that may trigger some recognition. This is something that came up in the middle of 2021 when uh, the then opposition leader, Judith Collins, and her then housing spokesperson, Nicola Willis, did a bipartisan deal with the government, with the then Housing Minister, Megan Woods. And this was unusual, as these bipartisan deals often are, and quite hopeful, because what it did was essentially cut through the powers of the RMA and make it very easy for someone to do some quite substantial infill housing without having to go through the often long and expensive process of getting a resource consent. So someone with a standalone, single-storey, regular old Kiwi home, not quite a quarter acre, uh, it's been a while since we've seen the quarter acre paradise, but you know, a regular section would be able to convert that into three three-storey townhouses. This is obviously you know, quite a common business model in the big cities where you have infill housing, particularly close to the centre of town. Uh, this was pushed through Parliament in a hurry and was really designed as a response to the sharp increase in house prices that we saw in 2021 in the wake of the uh, COVID lockdowns and the fairly surprising explosion in house prices due to the removal of LVRs, interest rates being at 2%, and a lack of new housing supply along with some pretty strong population growth immediately before COVID saw house prices rise quickly. And of course, with first home buyers uh, keen to get into the market, um, there was a lot of focus on how on earth do we get a lot more houses into the market. And uh, understandably, um, National, uh, particularly Chris Bishop and Nicola Willis, have been saying for quite some time the, the only solution to the high house prices is to just get a lot more housing supply into the market, do a lot more house building, a lot more property development, and to really push hard through councils to get their consents and get the process cracking so we can get lots more houses and of course, there's a lot of demand for townhouses in uh, the big cities. Um, it's got a little bit of a little chunk of land to rely on, no body corporates, and you can uh, pretty rapidly increase the amount of square meterage on a particular uh, land plot. Uh, square meterage being the square meter of the house uh, from, let's say, it's a hundred square meter house, and you've got three three-storey townhouses, suddenly you go from 100 square metres to maybe 600, 800 square metres with garages. So that is um, pretty attractive if you want to do the medium density thing. And 
This is particularly relevant at a time when it's becoming clear it costs a lot of money to build a new motorway, to build a railway, to lay down some big new pipes out to a new suburb on the edge of town, the greenfields developments that we've often seen in the past. Building new infrastructure for greenfields is just naturally expensive. And it's not just because it's a long way from the centre. Uh, it's just the, um, just the law of mathematics, really. Uh, it's a bit like looking at a circle and you look at something that's on the edge of the circle and you measure how far it is from the centre and how wide it might be uh, once you get to the edge of the circle and you realise how much more space you have to cover with your pipes and your roads and, uh, and also um, uh, how many tonnes of carbon emissions will be created as people who are living a long way from where they work or study or play. Uh, um, that is an issue for uh, not just councils but also governments and uh, people who have to pay for petrol and, and diesel. So... Um, this push to do MDRS on the face of it seemed quite an attractive thing if you were uh, focused on reducing housing costs and reducing emissions and reducing infrastructure costs. And councils are more aligned to the idea of um, what we call brownfields developments than they are greenfields. A, there's not so much infrastructure cost and B, um, you don't see the sort of uh, massive increases in land values that you get on the fringes of town when things are rezoned. So you get away from the usual process of plan change requests uh, under district plans, which can be difficult and expensive. So this seemed to be a good idea at the time uh, from a central government point of view and a local government point of view and a housing cost point of view and a climate change point of view, and an infrastructure cost point of view. But, as it turned out, a lot of people who live in these suburbs, typically the ones closer to the centre of town, what you'd call, uh, if you're feeling pejorative, a leafy suburb. And so, uh, naming some names, uh, we're talking the likes of Parnell, Ribiwera, Mount Eden, Mount Albert, Ponsonby, Graylin, um, Freeman's Bay in Auckland, in Wellington, the likes of Mount Cook, um, Mount Victoria, uh, Kelburn, Thorndon, uh, um, those sorts of areas, Island Bay, Miramar, uh, Upper Hutt, Lower Hutt, um, Porirua. And for a lot of people who've managed to get on the ladder and buy one of these standalone houses in the suburbs that might have some nice trees in the front and some nice trees in the back and a barbecue and um, plenty of space between a house and the next door neighbour's house. And because it's single storey, you can be sure that the next door neighbour is not looking down into your bathroom um, uh, at you as you have your bath or um, at you as you were thinking of having a barbecue. Um, this is the Kiwi Dream with the um, the driveway beside the house with the boat in the double cab ute in the garage at the back. So the idea that your next door neighbour would suddenly turn from being a basic single storey house to three, three storey, and this is the description you'll hear, monstrosities, uh, peering down into your backyard, yard, blocking out the sun, or as... 
the opponents in Christchurch called it daylight robbery, um, you can see why some people are opposed to it. And the people who are opposed to it are the ones who have time to go to public meetings to harass their local MP and to argue in local elections and in central government elections that this is uh, um, changing the deal. This is removing their rights as a property owner, even though it does nothing to change um, the rights of anyone who's living in a particular envelope of a property. Uh, it just means that in some cases you might not be able to see past the house that uh, was next to you. And um, for those people we worry about being looked down on from other places, um, that's something that uh, is a property right that may have been assumed, but certainly isn't locked in law. Uh, there's nothing in the limb that says you have the right to stop other people next to you building. Uh, this is something we've, uh, we've taken on as a new property right under the Resource Management Act. It's been pretty effective at stopping new development, along with other reasons. And so the National Party, who initially, you know, surprised everyone by going for this bipartisan deal, has been under intense pressure from the leafy suburbs through the various party meetings and through all sorts of lobbying. And I did wonder when I first saw it, I wonder if the true blue national supporters will allow this to continue. And Chris Bishop and Nicola Willis, to give them credit, kept arguing for it internally in the party and arguing for it uh, as party policy. And it's still party policy. However, uh, right from the start, the new leader, Christopher Luxon, has been less than enthusiastic about the policy and no doubt has been harangued up and down the country, left and right, day and night, to um, delete this MDRS, townhouse nation, idea. And he has said things like, well, we're having a look at the policy, or, you know, we might have to change a few things about the policy. And Chris Bishop has said in the past, yeah, well, you know, we're, ne we're never opposed to improving things when, they, when we see them. Uh, but he, he and Nicola Waters have not backed down from the, the whole central idea of three three-storey townhouses without a resource consent. Well, yesterday, Christopher Luxon, at a meeting of potential voters in Birkenhead, and if we've managed to get this uh, picture in with the email, you'll see a picture of it. Thank you to Matthew Scott in advance from Newsroom. Um, we took the picture. It's It's... Christopher Luxon talking to the audience in Birkenhead, the Birkenhead Bowling Club. And um, a, a very good market for uh, hair colouring salespeople because there was uh, plenty of white hair in the audience, let's say. Uh, a lunchtime crowd, obviously not working, plenty of retirees who do not like change, do not want anyone to build these three-storey townhouses anywhere near them. And it was one of the questions asked in this uh, uh, session with Christopher Luxon. And he said he thought the MDRS was a mistake. Now, um, that's quite a strong thing to say. He also went on later on in, co in conversations with journalists to say that 
this was a work in progress. Watch the space. Um, we'll see in a few weeks a new policy from the National Party through the housing spokesperson, Chris Bishop. And uh, it very much looks like uh, Christopher Luxon has decided to cave on this one to the um, white and blue-haired mavens of uh, inner-city Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, not to mention a few suburban areas where National Party supporters have said, we don't want any of this. The central question remains then, um, so how are you going to get the uh, houses close to the centre of town that you need to cope with all these extra people who are being invited in and meet our climate change uh, requirements, which you've committed to as well. And Christopher Luxon has made comments about um, how he'd actually prefer the development to be greenfields on the edge of town rather than these, this pesky, not-in-my-backyard, brownfields developments. Uh, that is um, potentially problematic because once you start talking about being in favour of greenfields developments, that basically says the infrastructure cost is going to be very, very high, uh, that we expect someone to pay for it, and then the question is, who's going to pay for it? Is it the council? Is it the government? Or is it going to be all lumped into development contributions and capital charges from um, the likes of water care or the council's uh, water infrastructure managers or the likes of the electricity lines companies, you know, the likes of Vector or Orion, or it's going to be a big charge that comes at you from Chorus or someone like that. And you often hear of these stories of um, property developers getting bills from uh, um, uh, the lines companies for hundreds of thousands of dollars for substations, not to mention the development contributions, which can range anywhere from $100,000 per dwelling to $500,000 per dwelling, depending on the um, amount of the cost of the underlying infrastructure, which is passed on to the developers. Now, normally the developers, you know, don't mind too much. It's obviously not their cost. They're just passing it on to the ultimate buyer. But these things add up. And once you've paid for the section, which often will include the costs of the development contribution in there or in the house and land package, you know, this can really add to the cost of a house. Now, why does this matter? Well, when you look at how housing is priced, um, one of the core ways in which, in fact, any product is priced is through what happens at the margins. So let's say, for example, um, you're looking at cars. What does the marginal new car cost to build? Let's say there's a huge increase in the cost of marginal new cars for whatever reason. What that will do is drag up the price of used cars. And that's what we see with houses. So when the cost of building a house, which includes not just the materials and the labor, but the development contributions, and of course the land cost, then you start to reset the price of all existing homes. And so what you do when you increase the marginal cost of every marginal new house at the margin of a city, is you increase the cost of houses and the cost of housing right across the city. And that this is a um, something that not a lot of people think about when they think about housing costs and how they've changed over the years and haven't rethought really about it in terms of the wide sweep of history. 
right up until um, the 1990s and into the 2000s, a lot of these underlying infrastructure costs, particularly for greenfields developments, were effectively sucked up by councils and the government. And often were just built by the Ministry of Works or the electricity department or the, um, the local electricity board or the local water board, which basically meant the costs of development and of infrastructure at the margins were met by the taxpayer, by the crown, by a big balance sheet able to be supported by the power to tax and by a very long time horizon. And it made sense for a government because if you can uh, encourage people to come and live in your town or city and that you're properly housed, you're probably going to do well, earn some money, have a job, have some kids, do all the things that societies like to do and pay tax, GST, uh, income tax, rates. So it all seemed to make sense and you didn't mind eating the initial cost because in the long run you got it back in tax receipts. Until we got to the 1990s and 2000s when that basic model of government changed, when the government didn't see itself as providing underlying infrastructure for growth, they saw that as a cost to the taxpayer that needed to be minimised because the aim of government was not to provide the underlying infrastructure for future generations. It was to reduce that cost and to provide room for tax cuts because the government was the problem. It was not the solution in the eyes of the people reforming government at the time. And so uh, what we've seen over the years is increasingly the government and councils have starved their cities and their underlying infrastructure of investment on the assumption that we had a stable population and that we had over-invested in infrastructure in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s and that we didn't need to be wasting all this good taxpayers' money by having a high tax rate, high public debt and high rates and that the aim of government or whoever is in government, particularly the politicians, is to squeeze down on the size of the government and to avoid having to pay all this money in underlying infrastructure because government could never um, successfully or efficiently um, build this infrastructure and run it because governments are useless and governments are inefficient and governments waste good taxpayers' money. That's the underlying theme of, of how we've seen this issue pretty much since the mid-1980s. Um, and what that's led to, of course, as we know now, is not nearly enough infrastructure investment. According to the Infrastructure Commission, the deficit is $100 billion, and we need to spend another $100 billion to cope with population growth of 0.5%, 0.5%. That's the StatsNZ uh, assumption. And if you um, uh, were serious about dealing with 2% population growth, which is what we have now and which we've had for most of the last 20 years apart from COVID, then you wouldn't be investing $100 billion or $200 billion. You'd be investing $500 billion or a trillion dollars in the next 20 or 30 years. To do that in any sort of substantial and efficient way at low cost essentially means the Crown borrowing money using its power to tax and very high credit rating and its uh, ability to fund that debt over a very long period. So uh, typically when councils take out loans, they're for two or three or five years. 
and um, certainly any sort of private body or fund or uh, corporation are likely to take out very short-term loans. The government can do 10 years, 20 years. In my view, it should be doing 50 years. Some other countries, they've done 100 years because this debt is going to fund infrastructure that will last for 100 years. So, and we know that um, people are coming here uh, in their uh, teens uh, and they're having kids of their own who will be around in 100 years. So that's the way we should be thinking of it. When we think about how we build, we should be thinking, what will the population be in 2100? And what will the temperature be in 2100? And what will our carbon emissions liabilities be in 2100? How many people will we have? Well, if you're being really honest about it and you look at what we've done in the last 20 years and which way politicians like to go, and also the demand to move to New Zealand from other places who that will be uninhabitable in a, a world with, by 2100, that is 2.7 degrees warmer, uh, uh, we're talking 2 billion people will be living in uninhabitable regions of the world, much of them uh, South Asia, North Asia, Southeast Asia. So we're talking India, China, the Philippines, Indonesia, Japan, um, those places. We're talking overall upwards of 2 billion people who would like to move if they could, probably won't be able to, won't be able to afford to and are unlikely to get approval to move to places like New Zealand and Australia. Obviously not the top or the centre, but the bottom and the edges. Um, but there will be people who will be rich and able to afford it and able to send their kids to universities and schools and buy citizenship, basically. And we will want that because they will be skilled and wealthy and able to add skills. And we seem to quite like importing people to... Um, help fill our jobs. That's about 100 million people who would love to move to New Zealand. Uh, and in many ways, we'd like to have them, particularly if we're going to build all this infrastructure. Uh, um, there's a chicken and the egg issue here. So um, what's going to happen? Well, with the current setup, with both Labour and National refusing to increase the scale of the use of the Crown's balance sheet, um, they are going to have to um, think about it in a different way. Now, one of the obvious ways to think about it differently is, and this is what I suspect we're going to hear from National, is to say, OK, yeah, well, we need to build the infrastructure, but it can't be the Crown. It can't be the government taxpayer taking the risk and the cost. It has to be someone else. Or maybe we do it in partnership. So we pay half the cost and some private body, maybe it's a big pension fund, pays the other half. And they invest their equity and they borrow some money on their behalf. We put some of our money in and we borrow some money as well. Now, the issue there is, A, those um, private balance sheets who would join up with the public balance sheet often have much lower time horizons. They have much higher costs of capital and uh, often have different aims. So they're not necessarily there to make the society... Uh, wealthier and healthier and um, have higher well-being, they're here to make a return on investment for their shelves, some of whom may not live here or care too much about what's going on here. So um, that's a complication. And these PPPs for these big infrastructure projects, they're not new. Um, there's been various attempts 
here and overseas, now at a greater scale and for longer overseas, the likes of Sydney and Melbourne, also in London, places like that. And unfortunately, the record is not good. Um, there's the obvious complications of the other side of the equation having a different length of balance sheet and cost of capital. And secondly, um, stuff goes wrong and someone has to pay usually. And uh, often what we see is that when things go wrong, eventually the Crown or the government has to um, take ownership of these things. So why um, increase your costs to start with and think that you're sharing the costs for something that really, when push comes to shove, you have to take it over. So um, PPPs are not popular overseas, even with conservative governments. And, you know, we have a track record here of what happens with PPPs. And if you're looking for some examples, uh, Transmission Gully in Wellington is a uh, prominent, recent and not successful one. Three years late, hundreds of millions of dollars over budget, crumbly surfaces, uh, all sorts of problems. Most agree this is a PPP that didn't work. Same with the um, Mount Eden uh, um, PPP where Serco, the international services company, uh, was sacked uh, six years into a 10-year contract because... Um, it allowed fight clubs and a whole bunch of problems and eventually had to pay a fine to the government. So that wasn't successful. I'm not sure they want to do that again. So the, here, this is the problem, that if we want to have significant amounts of housing supply drag down our housing costs, we have to build the infrastructure and it has to be funded from the public's balance sheet, most likely the Crown. And... That's the question for both the government and the opposition. How are you going to fund it? Interestingly, ACT uh, have a, an innovative idea, which essentially is to give some extra share of central government revenues to councils in the form of giving a share of GST receipts on construction materials to councils, uh, which gives them an increased ability to borrow money and they can put it on their balance sheets. Yep. That's, that's one idea. Um, uh, Treasury, National and Labor have said they're not keen on it, uh, so we'll see. Um, and also, we have not seen uh, the likes of um, any sort of sharing of income tax uh, revenues from the government to the uh, local government or any changes in the restrictions that the local government funding agency, which is run by Treasury, um, have on the ability of councils to borrow through the local government funding agency, which means that they have quite strict debt limits. They aren't able to increase their debt very much at all when they have fast growth and big infrastructure projects. So um, we uh, end up in this horrible Gordian knot where we love population growth, we love migrants, we need migrants, but we're not willing to build enough houses or infrastructure for them. And we end up with hospital waiting lists, A&Es that are, are clogged, schools that are booked out, houses that cost too much, rent that's too high, and still no movement in this Gordian knot we have in our housing market and in our political economy. And 
MDRS was not the sole solution to this problem, but it seemed to be a shining light on the horizon, something that might, as bipartisan deals often do, might solve the problem for a long term. What we've got now is it's clear that MDRS's time in the sun is limited. And if you're a developer or someone putting down a deposit or someone thinking of buying some land and redeveloping it, you are now thinking again after what uh, after you're hearing from Christopher Luxon. Because even if National and Act don't win the election in 2023, they'll win at some point. And you're making a decision for the long run. And you've just seen what had been a bipartisan deal dissolve in front of your eyes. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my podcast for today, Thursday, the 25th of May. Kaki Town North.